democracy. I love this kind of um, with that uh, answer. We're trying to you know, deal with that, um, but we are dealing like we know that this symposium would be about this moment, and we're dealing with the current crisis and the youth. Um, so yeah, we're still working things out in terms of like you know China. And there's Africa, and then the foreign policy crisis. You know how the West stands. You know what is what is the West? But um, uh, and then the ideological, I guess, um, atmosphere. We're still working those questions out as well. Um, but I think that's all I have in terms of introduction of what we're doing so far. The, the organizing of the symposium, but you can add. Um, I think we put it succinctly. Um, I feel that uh, the free school, I mean, in learning from Henry Winston's life, uh, is learning how to take responsibility uh, for young people today for for um, the struggles that they're faced uh, with. Um, young people, in a lot of ways, because of the lack of the revolutionary. Um, struggle or the lack of you know any you know revolutionary tradition for today um we're going at it alone you know what i'm saying needlessly uh because of people like henry winston you know um but in bringing henry winston um to the fore today i feel that the you know that the free school is beginning to pave that way forward for young people um and there is a lot i think there is a lot of hope and ideas like the substance uh, of equality, uh, I mean, to kind of expand, it's like, you know, it, 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 it brings me back to the black freedom struggle, you know, the, 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 the struggle, um, MLK, you know, uh, and the people involved in the Montgomery vice boycott and onward uh, to the struggle against the war in Vietnam, you know, they were, they, that is, a, I think, a tangible example of this substance of equality and how that shows, uh, you know, going even, you know, going back to the revolutionary tradition, you know, being, you know, all men were created equal, coming straight out of uh, uh, um, the Constitution, out of uh, uh, people like George Washington, exactly. Um, and so I do feel uh, that there is, I mean, there's something I think Americans, you know, I was talking to a coworker, um, you know, and I asked him, you know, because, you know, there's a justification, you know, for the capitalist class, you know, um, and then, but then there's like the question, what about equality? You know what I'm saying? And that always, that seems to register in a similar way that like when King asks the question, well, what did violence achieve? What does it solve? It, 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 it registers in the consciousness of people because of, uh, because it uh, brings people to the truth, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, there is these deep crises, deep crises, um, We'll kind of talk about it in the strategy for a black agenda, but uh, neocolonialism is invisible. Um, uh, you know, the rise of China is seen as a great terror. Um, uh, you know, Afghan, you know, there's these different political currents, you know, that there's so much confusion. This, these, you know, uh, immigrants at the, at the border, you know, these, these images of, you know, people getting like uh, whipped and it all, there's, but there's so much ideological confusion that the people can't uh, for themselves decide which way is the way forward, you know, and that's where a, a figure like Henry Winston comes in because he, sh he shows us, um, he 
shows us that you know the goal, uh, the apple of our eye, quote him, is unity. Um, and there is this question of how to pull everything together, but to me that that I, I think it's kind of clear. I mean, with China, you know, with people like Chuda, who 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 in his biography talked about how um, you know they were think the only thing they were thinking about was how to make a new China, you know, um, and this 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 is uh or this disconnects deeply to Henry Winston, who saw his life like Du Bois saw his life in relative to the great problem, you know, the great problem of the uplift of humanity of, of peace. Exactly. Oh no, that that reminded me of something that we said in our meeting Monday, which is that Winston felt committed. It was like he had said that in order to solve his problem of like you know being in poverty, not having a job, and stuff like that, he had to solve the problem of regeneration. We have this commitment. I think it's important um, because a lot of, I mean, like what I said before, you know, young people are, are going at this thing alone. And they, I, I don't think they're looking even to the right of themselves to say, well, oh, I'm facing the same problem that, you know, uh, my, 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 my coworker or my neighbor or my classmate is, or my, uh, my fellow, my, my brother is facing. They're not, they're not looking at it in those terms. Um, there's something I thought about really briefly. And it's kind of the thing. Um, from my head, um, but I do see, um, yeah, I just, I, you know, but I do see that, you know, um, there is, there is this great importance of seeing yourself in, in, in that something that is greater, you know, than you. Um, that might come back to myself too. Uh, I think. Um, Of equality. Mm -hmm. 
don't mean what the ruling class means. And how, in another sense, is state power and the organization of the state connected to the substance of freedom. And then another thing we talked about is the essence of the American revolutionary process. Already we're, you know, thrown into philosophy. All of that is going to have to be deployed and worked out. And, you know, we're trying to get into it, you know, and then, you know, uh, the life of Henry Winston and the life of young people today. What does his life have to say to the lives of young people who are not educated? Winston had to drop out of school to find a way to make a living. He had to leave his home uh, I think they were living in Kansas City, Kansas at that time, and leave his mother and his sisters and go on the road looking for work, looking for food, looking for a way to survive. We see this all around us. And then, of course, but now we're talking about the concentration of poverty in huge cities. Um, Stranded, yes, yes, I keep forgetting this concept, stranded population. Um, it's a sociological concept where we try to describe people who are completely cut off from the productive process and are stranded. Life has little meaning. This is a tragedy beyond anything I think that Winston's generation could have imagined. This is the great American tragedy, and we see it in these cities. We can walk around and come face to face with it. So, you know, this is, we're trying to anchor all of this, as Serafina said, in the life world of the dispossessed, of the wretched of the earth, of the impoverished. Of those people, and here we have to rethink, by the way, the color line, because we cannot see the color line if or understand the color line in this moment unless we understand the class conflict in this moment. They are so interpenetrated. And of course, this is a huge ideological question because the ruling class has seized upon, like, finally, you know, the color line, but in a way that disconnects it from humanity 
and the, and the crisis of this time, which we have described. Um, so, um, I, no, 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 I got I got Thank you for your sensitivity and attentiveness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring, bring your tissues every Saturday. You don't know who might be. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just, and then, and this is what I think. You know, we have to work out um, conceptually and theoretically because we're, we're, you know, one of the things we think how does a theory of freedom mm -hmm. inform a practice of the struggle for freedom? Okay. Does that make sense? Um, and what I'm, I have to say, I can't tell you, it's hard for me to describe my week, what my days are like between three and school. It's very, oh, you don't want to describe that. Yeah, I, I do want to describe it because it helps for me to explain what my thinking is. And first of all, this is the greatest crisis that this nation and perhaps world capitalism has ever faced. Um, while in other periods, especially in the time that Winston was writing, we talked about the general crisis of capitalism. We talked about the world revolutionary process. But never had we seen this crisis to be an existential crisis of the United States, never had we conceived the top, no, didn't we? Uh, didn't didn't move out from the front of the uh, uh, Never had we conceived an existential crisis of this magnitude. You know, you know what I'm saying? We saw a working class that was primarily working. We saw a manufacturing base. We saw service industries, you know, all of that. But never could we have conceived of a technological revolution that could leave over half of the working class without work. Indeed, affecting the youth more than any other part of the population and making of them a stranded population. We just, there's nothing in our thinking of that period that talked about this. Nobody did. You see what I'm saying? So, okay. We have to, in this, you know, symposium, talk about and account for the magnitude of this crisis. But then it's not just a crisis of a system, a crisis of a structure of production. It is a crisis of the human being. You know, um, 
and hence all this discussion of the transhuman, the technologically altered human, literally this dystopia, that is dystopia, the opposite of a utopia, a dystopia that is populated by a new species called the transhuman, the transgender, where the substance of the human being is eviscerated, is eliminated. That art is no longer art. That music is no longer music. And all of this, we are told, is because this is irony. But it's a bad joke, a terribly bad joke on humanity. Uh, one of the things I would study, and I think we'll have to account for this in what we do, is art itself. Mm -hmm. You know, um, about 65 years ago, maybe a little less, an art movement known as pop art became the richest, most popular uh, art the most expensive art in the world. That movement was begun by, at least they say the father of it was Andy Warhol, who came from commercial and advertising art and began a new movement that was the opposite of everything that we thought was art, you know? From the earliest times of art in all parts of the world to the European Renaissance, etc. And this art was based upon, and this I know this is familiar to all of us, based upon celebrities and their representation and uh, beauty better understood as what is pretty or uh, uh, socially acceptable. We end up, of course, with uh, art that is not, that does not touch the souls of humanity or inform humanity or enlighten humanity, but says, oh, the Campbell soup can or the imaging of Marilyn Monroe or Mao Tongue or whatever is pop art. It's but a mirror of this, of the moment. And by the moment, they mean the immediacy. There is nothing of lasting values. It is reducing the imagination of humanity to what is marketable, what can be sold. And this is called satire and irony. So all the things that we talked about and that's why sometimes we're going so much against the grain. 
You know, for example, uh, Gibeah told me there's a professor at University of Pennsylvania who equates Snoop Dogg with John Coltrane. <laughs> now, <laughs> now that seems immediately like a bad joke. <laughs> oh, you're not serious, are you? But he is serious. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he is serious. And the whole thing is serious, but serious in the sense of a regression from humanity. So we have to understand art and its perversion, the undermining of art and it's as part of the crisis. We have to understand the attack upon the very substance of what it is to be human by this new form of species production. We have to understand technology. This, the use of technology to save a system and destroy humanity. The system of profit, the system of, 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 of the exploitation of the world. We have to understand that there is a foot, a movement to reduce the world's population, especially in Africa and Asia. But then we have to also assert that this crisis makes more urgent the, um, the striving of the struggle for a new system, for socialism. You know, so I, I want to show, I, let me shut up there. I think all of that has to be put into our configuring of this symposium. The thought of Henry Winston in the context of a world historic crisis of every dimension. So I'll stop here. I will, I will say, um, the art, when you brought up art, it made me think of a lot of things. I feel like um, there is a deep crisis. Um, and I do think that there is a lot um, to, a lot in, like in the way that art is figured and that art is made that, that shows how deeply um, detached it is from humanity. Um, uh, just throughout my life, I don't know if I should into it too much, you know, I think it, it will be something that comes up. I mean, I, I think about different artists. I think my, my father, you know, but also my, my sister, like, I, I, but I remember on the postmodernist art, I remember Caleb, me and Caleb were walking around Penn. I don't go to Penn, but we were walking around Penn one time, and he showed me this, uh, uh, what was it, the feely thing? Like, like, you could feel the art, it was like fur or something, and they called it art. You know what I'm saying? To de-stress or whatever. The in, a li in the library. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's just, I mean, and then there's this uh, postmodernist, uh, uh, like all these art shows that, you know, either commodify people, like literally turn people into like cartoon, like like cartoon characters, like to add an abstraction on humanity, or or that literally like. Like sexualize women in the name of, of 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 women's rights and women's empowerment, or um, it, it, it 
uh, you know, it, it, it shows a black.
peace. We want the eradication of poverty. We want a better world for all children. And it just couldn't be clearer. And it's being stated by so many people in the world. And it's just a question of getting out of this like thought prison. You know, postmodernism, nihilism. You know, uh, black men are horrible. Asian men are horrible. Um, and even even this thing of population, uh, what you were saying, the I mean, it, it goes to what you say. I mean, isn't it a sign of uh, optimism that more children from Africa and Asia are being born? Like we want more children with those values and that culture, um, you know. And um, well, the other thing, just with gentrification, I was thinking this question of art, because there's this erasure of this classic architecture. And even though, okay, some of it was built for more of a managerial or whatever, it wasn't all for working people, though working people did get it eventually. But there were so many, it was so rooted in history. You know, like there's like the, the houses on, I was reading about it, the houses uh, around on Park Avenue and uh, mm -hmm. there's Moorish architecture. You know, there's Victorian, it's such a beautiful synthesis. Wow. And you feel the beauty of it. You know, and there's something instinctive in it. Like there's something really classical. There's so many historical references. Like you're saying, it's not just about the moment. It's about creating works of art. And the new stuff, just tear it down, raise it down, build the cheapest stuff. You know, call it a student luxury apartment. And it's just such a, I mean, it is, it does go back to this pop art thing. You know, just art that satiates for the moment, not art that's going to stand, stand the test of time. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just thinking about all that. But those, those UN assembly uh, speeches are really, I mean, it's just really, there really is a consensus that's growing. And I feel like that also is a part of this event, like this, this consensus and how, you know, Henry Winston can really show us, I mean, how to listen, how to be a part of this, and how to contribute. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I follow the UN general assembly. I mean, I listen because they're really good speaking up. But my other point is that I, I, you know, you can feel it's a youth crisis. It's not just what about your family. It's, it's the energy that I had in my life. Now, I, I can't be out with these You know, so they had to go some places. If I wasn't doing what I was doing, I wouldn't be sitting I wouldn't be right here. And, and, and it's something that, it's something that, it, it, it has its basis in art. I went to Wagner, Tony was right ahead of me in Wagner, but I was a, I would have been a technical student who, you know, not because they didn't want to call me a technical student, but, you know, in woodcraft and, and making, I was making a traditional print. But what, what happened to a lot of the young people when the past I was in, they kind of just took that work. You know, these prints that we make, and you know, wood carving things. So I'm just saying to take what we what we knew already, and um, that was shop, but it wasn't just shop. Yeah. It was a, it was a vocational, but the intellectual vocation. It wasn't just vocation. Wow. You know, because I was um, I was a, I was a draft a draftsman. Even if I didn't understand what a draftsman is. I'm a draftsman, so I'm I'm pencil I'm pencil and ink pen wise, and those kind of skills. The students I was with at Wagner, we was he he just I'm looking at my future in front of me like we came from some of the same networks or or or, or values of I'm not the leader in this country. My granddaughter is helping. 
eventually, even though I love how she is, is to be pliable. Don't act like ain't nothing and this youth crisis, right? if, if she didn't run this race this morning, I'm not saying that she ain't running this race. But there's so many young people that y'all have stopped with. It's like, I got stopped with young people. And if you don't use the word youth, energy is youth. The only guy youth energy. But you got to keep on maintaining this stuff to meet y'all every day. This is an appetite. If you
and politicians want to put out and either like you know it's like there are issues about gentrification or like the political alignment that people make um whether that be with like joe biden or like you know the issue with anti-trump and those things like it's with this symposium we're dealing with how do we break out of like the american notions of today that are putting people in these boxes like the young people with like lgbtq or like the cultural nationalism to like in any way like black white you know what i mean so it's like how do we deal with like what i guess we've been lied to um, about and um I think when I, I like I was feeling optimistic to see this week because I was seeing these speeches, you know, like a new humanity. Like that's basically what they're talking about. And um my question is how do people like how can people also see this? Um and yeah. No, I think that's important as well. Um I feel that young people um they get way, I mean, I, I can say they get way too set, way too fast on an idea of something. Um, and I feel, mm, I feel like, you know, breaking breaking them out and breaking people generally out of the, that mindset. I mean, I'm kind of repeating what you're saying. Um, but I just see it so clearly, like, um, with Afrocentrism or, you know, like, they're so, like, they, you know, they can talk so much. And they have so, and they they've read so much about astrology, yeah, or or or, or a pseudo, yeah, or like a pseudo history, or like a like like uh, what what is it called? Um, what what's the, the chemist? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's like you know we 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 thought you know there's so much, but none of it really has any dealing with the life your own life world. You know you haven't you haven't really dealt like it's still. It still comes. It still somehow manifests itself in a way where, like Henry Winston made, he made the distinction in, in an interview. He talked about, you know, I thought, you know, uh, his uh, that the time that he was talking about, I thought my time, it was just human nature. Like the white world was just the white world, black world was just black world, America. This is all human nature. It's all how things are. Um, but the Communist Party pulled in it was a matter of condition, and that's what Henry Winston taught me um, that it was a matter of condition. Um, but I still feel that some, like a lot of these uh, pseudo ideologies, or a lot of this queer, or like the woke capitalism, or all these different things, they still somehow uh, lead us back, or lead us back to it being uh, being a matter of ontology, a matter of being, a matter of you know, it's uh, it's uh, the crisis. It's not a crisis, but it's it's a matter of how you are, you know, and not a matter of the of what is forcing you to do what, or not forcing you, or what is driving. Uh, the historical moment that you're in. Um, I, we're not taught to, taught to look around. We're taught to look inward, um, to look at to look at ourselves as a problem, and we're taught how to grow within the system. You know, we're taught how to make you know make this make sense for our lives, even though our lives are being destroyed by it. In fact, it, interestingly enough, when you had talked about uh, you know you're going to school as the the, the draftsman, um, it was very interesting because I think part of the, the question with young people. I think part of what has to be looked at is uh, 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 James Baldwin, coming back to James uh, mm -hmm. or Baldwin, you know, 
And I say that because you know it was in different it was just different descriptions where you talk about young people. You talk about uh, you know the crisis happening that, that youth, young people were faced with. He talked about it in the fire next time. Mm -hmm. You know he talked about it in um, or um, taking to the water and, and, and uh, nobody knows my name. He talked about it in other essays, but he talked about it as well and described it for, you know in his novel. You know the crisis that uh, young people were faced with. You know uh, how how young people. Are, like, I remember a line where he said he would never. You know he, his character. You know would never forgive the West. You know and never. You know um, and this deep like both hatred but also the the ability for him because he he bore witness to the crisis um, and that's something that's not happened today. You know we don't we don't have a James Baldwin. We have. Um,
No, she's not dead. She moved away. Don't get, don't get that wrong. She's not dead. Very good. She's okay. Sorry about what And I've been able to go everywhere with him and make tons of friends. Like, I've made so many friends. I've gone to this festival. I made a couple friends there. And I've always been known to get back up with my people. As people, we are actually our lead. Don't say what people told you are. Sure. You're not just you. There's so much more than that. You're growing inside and you're growing on the outside. And for beauty and celebrities, I don't know why they get all that practice anyway, because they know they didn't start out like that. They know they didn't start out like that. But as for beauty, people be like, I've seen my friends put on tons of makeup, foundation, powder, and I've seen my mom do it too. And you know, as you can see from my face, I had acne. <laughs> and all I see on is some lip gloss. And they'd be like, well, why are you putting on stuff to cover your face? Because I know, as I look in the mirror, I am beautiful. I am beautiful inside and out. I am black and I'm beautiful. You can be Asian, you can be black, Afghanistan, you can be anything. And you're beautiful no matter what they say, no matter what condition you have, reflected, you are beautiful. You're smart and you definitely can make a change in this world. Y'all need stuff. I'm sorry. Let me tell you something. It's contagious. If all of you go out here today, make someone smile, know that it's coming from your heart. Know that this person probably has a smile in their life. This person probably has something going on in their life, you know, something deep. And you just made this person day just by telling a funny joke, just by saying, yo, what's up? And it's really like really great and it's very perfect. And I know probably some of y'all have already passed this phase, but if you have it, please do this on behalf of me because I'm here. <laughs> please, when you go home, look in the mirror, stare there for a couple minutes, and then ask the question that I just asked. Who are you? How have you developed over time? How how are you going to develop more? How do you think well? All you are here. Because you want to make a difference in the world. And that's great. And I'm going to be honest, I want to make a difference too. I'm 14, and I've seen people do it. So I've seen my mom do it, you know, get back up on three kids. I've seen my dad do it, like, five now, or, you know, for me. And he got back up on his feet. And something I'm going to tell y'all this because I don't think I'm going to do this today. Uh, in seventh grade, I was known to be, you know, kind of. And then Allison, because I was focused on something that I shouldn't have been focused on. In class, my teacher said, well, Jayla, what's going on? And I know, and I was going to a counselor a lot, a lot in that day. And, you know, because things were like bullying and stuff. And as I know, I'm very sensitive. I know my voice sounds shaky. I'm just here. <laughs> Not going to cry. Uh, and... I've been known to have problems with bullying because they're like, oh, you're so sad. Oh, you're so ugly. And then that's when it was like, well, I see people online. I see these people in the school. They have their hair done. They have this beautiful face. Everyone loves them. Why can't I be like that? And it's just like, I've gone to counseling for those things. And, you know, as a girl, so I still need those. But on a parent teacher conference, they tell my wife, get those. <laughs> we all do. You know you don't want your parents going to that school. Yeah. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> and she goes, 
clean and she goes, Well, Jayla, I don't know what's wrong with you. Your mom keeps perfectly fine. Let me tell you when I got so mad, all I wanted to do my parents do not define who I am. Just because she is my mother does not mean we have the same feelings. Does not mean we are the same person. I was going differently. I was going to grow up and be not what she is. I'm supposed to be better than her. My siblings are supposed to be better than me. As the next generation, I am supposed to stand out. I am supposed to lift people up. And that's what I plan to do. Do not look at me and do not look at my parents and say, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you so upset? You think my mom dad got home crying her eyes out because I'm in school crying my eyes out? No, that's not how it works. We're, we're not siblings. We're not, well, we're related, but not in that way. She is so much older than me. You can't go at, look at her and then look at a 13-year-old child and be like, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you so upset? Your mom feels fine. Your dad feels okay. Why are you upset? My mom and dad are kind of known as fighters, but I'm known as a peaceful person. And you can take that right there as I am not my parents. I was born from them, yes, but I am not them. And I think God, every day, that I just sit in front of so many people and tell them that, yo, you're not alone in this year. Together, we're together. As for humanity itself, we need more people, okay? Y'all are great. Y'all are a great people. Just for sitting here in this room, listening to them every day. Listening to him. I know he talks. <laughs> every day. Just listening. And y'all are great. Because y'all want to help humanity. And y'all have the same problem as people. And let me tell you, as a young person in this room, probably younger than all of you, um, I'm telling you, I got some of the young people's back, all right? Mm. I have them, they're my friends, and we have a school circle, and we're good. Because we watch out for each other, and I'm always taking a less fortunate. But once you don't feel love, mm. once you don't feel appreciated, I'm always telling you, yo, look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, who are you? Don't define yourself because someone told you. You're different. I'm different. We're all different. We're, don't, we're not all the same. And as for skin color, we shouldn't be defined by who we are just because of how we look and our skin color. That's the worst part about it. You can't go and look at someone and be like, oh, you're ugly because you're black. Or, oh, you're probably, you know, just a bad person because you're Asian. That's so wrong. Because it's so much more than that. Trust me. I've been called Asian because of my eyes. <laughs> you think that's fair? You think that's fair being compared? To other Asians, even though I'm not Asian, like it's no, yes, I see some of y'all probably in here. It's no offense against y'all. I would love to be Asian, but like you can't just look at me and be like, "Oh, you look Asian because your eyes, you know, you got those pointy eyes." Like <laughs> that's just like yeah, that's rude. Yeah, but do that. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Anybody else want to say? Oh, Brandon. No, I mean, so what? Uh, Jayla? Yeah
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what Jayla was saying, it's it's making me reflect a lot on how education nowadays is geared. Education and pop culture today is geared towards containing the free spirit of young mm-hmm. And I think it's clear that like there's so many I think there's a lot of people like who have the same mentality, like who want to do good. Um, but it's just, yeah, this education and pop culture is messed up. And I wanted to share my experience because I was observing a brief class at Central High School. You know Central High School? Oh, yeah. So I was at three classes at Central High School, and all of them were social studies uh, or world history. And um, the first class was led by a white trans woman. And she she was teaching Ibram Kendi, they were reading in that class, Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me. And, um, you know, he was talking all this anti-racism stuff. And I, I talked to him after the class and, um, you know, he was saying, he was kind of trying to show off to me, and he was like, yeah, you know, we learn about a lot of stuff here, you know, anti-racism. Um, they, they read a New York Times article on police abolition, and um, he was like, yeah, you know, we also learn about Vietnam and South Africa, and, um, you know, we also read James Baldwin and talked to teachers, and in my head, I was just like, Okay, like you don't, but then again, like you don't get credit for reading Baldwin because you're not drawing the line. If you're just reading Baldwin and saying he's the same as uh, Tanahasi Coates or or even Kennedy, then there's no criteria for right and there's no criteria for wrong. Right. And um, I asked him, I asked him, so um, you know, like, what what do your students resonate with the most? as far as like, you know, the things that you taught in class. And he said they connect the most with the comedy he's ever collected. And that's like, you know, anti, especially anti-black men. Um, but like furthermore, like, it's, it's made to indict men who attempt to stand up to the system. And um, so I was thinking in my head, like, of like, you know, I, I was just conflicted. I was just like, before, I, I'm not gonna lie, like, Doc, when you assigned Hiram um, Kennedy for preschool, I underestimated how intense it was. And, you know, I was just like, not everyone's reading Hiram Kennedy, but then again, Central High School is is the Harvard of high school in Philly. And these uh, children are being groomed to be the future rulers of society. So in the future, is it gonna get to the point where every young man or or even every young woman like yourself who has a free spirit, who has the courage to speak up, is gonna be a walking target? And is it gonna get to the point like where it's like it's just so much easier to demonize people and throw them in prison and 
further push them into the margins because now you're talking about uh, having a hard time getting a job because you are you do embody this free spirit and you are willing to take criticism mm -hmm. um, and you will speak up if if you feel the need to and um, it was like for me it was just it was a reality check but y'all get those yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it was a reality check. And then, so the next class was with Mr. Hong. Mr. Hong is that <laughs> Do you know him? I had him for all four years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, he was, he was teaching anti-racism too and cultural relativism. And um, come to find out, he himself is a member of AAU, Asian Americans United. And he's using his course to recruit young people to AAU. And and the other the other the trans woman, he's he was also a, a member of uh, Power, which is a nonprofit at Temple University. And then I, I go in the lunchroom and then I see a guy with a, a working educator shirt on. And I'm like, okay, like something is going like I don't know, like this is different. Something is going on. Yeah, exactly. And um, this one of one of the, the person who was taking me around was saying, like, you know, she was kind of saying, like, this is my faction. This is my faction of woke people within the faculty, and we're trying to pressure uh, Central High School to, um, you know, in, in include a more anti-racist curriculum. And um, but to me, it just seemed like. It seemed like they're trying to stage a coup against Central High School, and she was saying like, she was saying like, yeah, you know, we get a lot of uh, parents of children who call into the school and write letters of concern about, you know, because we're teaching uh, uh, police abolition and prison abolition, and um, like her, but her attitude was like, you don't care, like it, it was almost like the goal is to make people uncomfortable and and to cause. Um, disruption of the vision. Um, but yeah, I mean, these these children in Central High School and probably Massingen, like, in the future, unless there is an alternative that is posed to them, um, you know, they're going to rule over the children who go to the more poor high schools, mm -hmm. the, the lesser privileged high schools. And um, I think they're, they're being groomed to be the the leaders of Philly who are going to silence the sense of the working class, which which is why I think um, this event and and finding clarity is is important because um, yeah a way forward, but there there also needs to be a, a positive rupture, you know, within the the discussion within the thought process. Um, but yeah, and the statistics of, of Central High School is very interesting. Because Philly is a black city, but Central High School is 40% Asian and 18% black, 8% Latino, and the rest is uh, white or other. And um, it it just it put everything in perspective. And um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think this event is is good and at like the Ibram. Even Kendi and understanding our, uh, identity politics 
and using Henry Winston as a weapon, or like, you know, as a way to um, sift through and, and dismantle the, the lies and, and all of that is, is important. Um, because, yeah, there, there needs to be like a positive break and a positive rupture. Yeah, so this, this event, it, it makes me really hopeful. And I think um, it, you know, like we, our generation tends to view history as something that was so long ago and we're detached from it and it has nothing to do with us. But this has, like Henry Winston and, and what he's talking about with real pan-Africanism and distinct strategy is, is so relevant to young people today. And it's just so relevant in understanding the world and like, yeah, like, you know, having the, the freedom to change it and the world better. We know we're trying to corrupt that. So we said that people are trying to take away that voice of us young people and also of y'all, you know, older people. That's wrong. And it shouldn't happen at all. No matter what, no matter what race you are, no matter what color you are, gender, no matter what, it should be the fact that you're scared to talk out. It should be the fact that these people are trying to take away your voice. And if it does happen, <laughs> if it does happen and they do find a way to take our voice and we do won't be able to have dreams because we are free to be oppressed, I'll make sure as a person that it won't. And I'll make that a promise because I promise myself over something here and I'll just like promise you. I promise I'm going to find some way to make it work so that people can have a job and so that people can talk and feel what they want to say. So they have to. That, it's wrong to take away someone's voice. It's wrong to say, you can't say that because, you know, you're right. People are afraid of issues. That's what, as people, as, you know, there are people, they're afraid of issues. They're afraid to say, hey, I didn't, I didn't do that. I did not bring that cup, but you did. Okay. And then uh, it's always turning back on you. Uh-huh. <laughs> but right. then it always turns back on you because mm -hmm. they'd be like, well, what's your evidence? Mm -hmm. And then when you hit them with that right evidence, well, you was in the room. Mm -hmm. No one else has been in the room all day except you. Mm -hmm. So the fact that now the cup is broken and you've been on the room, that means you broke it. Then they can hit you with the that wasn't me. <laughs> Let's, uh, let me let me call on some other people. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, that's all right. Um, yeah, I also think that this the Henry Winston event is going to be really important because I think it's a good time in general for Americans to actually understand the Cold War because um, I feel like you can't really talk about Henry Winston without talking about the Cold War, McCarthyism anti-communism and um, yeah and I think to what people were saying earlier about um, Americans need to listen to the rest of the world um, like Americans need to become part of humanity again I think like some of us were reading about the Korean War recently and there's this from um, Wilfred Burchette the Australian journalist and there's this part where Wilfred Burchette is describing what it was like um, when the ceasefire was officially agreed to between the US um, and then North Korea and China. 
and he he talks about this scene where you had because um, the British were also there, but basically you had like South and North Koreans were celebrating, like these soldiers, the British soldiers were also celebrating with the Chinese soldiers. Like it's a very like because mostly it was all these young men who like were just glad that the war was over, especially like these young British men who were like, why was I even brought here to fight in like this peninsula that means nothing like meant nothing to me up until like I was set to fight here, you know? Um and so it's like you have this like like for three days you have this scene where like all of these young men were like celebrating the end of the war. Um and like, you know, you have like these North and South Koreans prompting to each other, like, we're gonna fight for reunification and peace, stuff like that. But then Richard talks about the young American soldiers, the young American men who basically because of McCarthyism and anti-communism have been told like you can't fraternize with the enemy. Basically, like they were just like kind of sitting in their camp and like watching sadly as like everyone else was celebrating like the, the ceasefire and this move the step towards peace. Um, and I think that's like a, it's kind of a metaphor, I think, for what has happened to America, where you're kind of sadly watching out on the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, because of anti-communism, but like anti-communism as this form of whiteness and white supremacy, it's like you're so isolated from the rest of humanity. And, um, and I think like the legacy of Henry Winston, I think that's, I, I feel like that's like this window into like America can be become part of humanity again. Um, and I think, yeah, that has to be a, a point that's made um, because like if the alternative is just that, yeah, it just feels like America is going to keep thinking. Um, and like, I don't know, just like moving into this place where people become more and more isolated and more and more um, distant from the sense of what it means to be a human being. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to move that. Yeah. <laughs> 
was a critique of mass commodity production. A critique of kitsch. 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 It was the appropriation of a critique of capitalist society. There was a point to getting the audience to reflect on the phantasmagoria of mass production, the fetish of commodities. Perhaps an emancipated society would use the commodities of today in a new and creative way, and their art is meant to encourage a reflection on the inhibited potential of today. So the first. I'm sorry, Emma. The what potential of today? How was that formulated? Um, perhaps an emancipated society would use the commodities of today in a new and creative way, and their art was meant to encourage a reflection on the inhibited potential of today. Inhibited potential. Yeah. So, you know, response to pop art and how pop art has another purpose. But it goes back to this irony thing. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I was, you know, I was, I was even just thinking, like, a lot of Western uh, philosophy, I mean, this postmodern thing, and yeah, it goes back, you know, it's like, oh, but, you know, I'm going to ironically say it, but without saying an alternative. I think it is really irresponsible at a time when there was so much of an alternative, a different humanity. You know, even this thing of psychoanalysis, I'm going to just plumb the depths of your psychology and I'll say whatever anybody says, it has ulterior motives. But I was thinking, you know, can you really psychoanalyze like Paul Robeson? You know, he was a complete human being. I mean, he was so full of goodness and, you know, he was willing to give his life for, you know, Humanity. I mean, like the kind of goodness Jayla was talking about, um, you know, and that exists in people, in, in hundreds of thousands of people in the world that, you know, the more you get in contact with people, the more you realize, like, it's a question of unleashing what's there and, um, you know, giving people the chance to reach their potential. Um, yeah. That's why they exiled him. Pardon me? That's why he was exiled. You talking about broken stuff. Yeah. 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 And then Samir. I just wanted to respond. Speak up. Oh, excuse me. I just wanted to so <laughs> I just wanted to respond to a couple of points that I saw. So just now about Freud. Um, you know, it's so interesting when we read Freud, what the most a lot of the theories that Freud actually puts forward, some of them have some failures. Right? But then we always have to ask, well, what does it get rolled into? So from Freud, you get to Marcuse. From Marcuse, you know, to some extent, who I think uh, was uh, Anne Ray Davis's professor. See, this history of thought is very important because then certain rationales for what civilization is. Because Marcuse's book, Eros and Civilization, everything is about the sexual.
questions about Freud and what are these impulses and the unconscious and psychoanalysis that Nathan brought up. Um, you know, these things are completely, again, up for exploration again in the 21st century. And as you come up, um, as the older folk,
But I think we should make clear. First of all, Saeed was uh, trying to be ironic in the title of that essay because he's not Jewish. Therefore, what does he mean, the last Jewish intellectual? He's Palestinian by birth. Now, if he becomes something else in terms of ideology, it would be better that he say it rather than to uh, gesture towards it with irony. And I agree with you. I think, if I could just say a small thing, you know, because the intellectual and ideological universe is populated with all of these people, and it's a, it's a jungle that you try to wade through. And for most people, you, you never see the light at the end of it. So the Edward Saeed, like, like Magnus said, who you would assume and was at one time at least, was on the executive committee or the central committee of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Uh, and then he falls out with Yasser Arafat, and I don't know the reasons why, but I would tend to be on Yasser Arafat's side rather than Edward Said, given that Edward Said had risen to academic prominence in the United States at Columbia University, and when he rose to prominence to be anti-Israel or anti-Zionist was tantamount to an intellectual crime. So he had to compromise. And hence, uh, he, you know, intersecting with this whole French anti-working class, you know, and, and as uh, Divya brought up about psychoanalysis being the uh, alternative or uh, superseding political economy, historical materialism, the actual sciences of humanity, that everything is in, in the subconscious mind, that we're all ultimately determined by our impulses. And hence, forgive me for just going, pop culture and Andy Warhol and he openly, 60 years ago, advocated for the centrality of celebrity. And now we are all the victims. It's all over the media, all over social media, that celebrity is what we should strive for. Nobody is beautiful because we only have the beautiful people on television. The Kardashians. Nicki Minaj, Cardi B. We can go down the line. I don't know all of that. But we are all terrorized. People are terrorized. Young women and, and especially are terrorized by the celebrity elite culture. So, yeah. Well, actually, go ahead. I don't know. I don't exactly know where the question of what culture? Meme culture? Me. But this thing was explain what that is exactly. I'm a pretty expert. Yeah, it's kind of like a joke, like it takes probably something serious, you know, like yes. COVID. Yeah. Like, it makes it a joke. joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. I saw 
and then be like, when mm, COVID hit, and you just laying in the bed. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like along with, I almost feel like along with Pop Art and Andy Warhol and the Italian celebrities, there's also like, especially with the stuff you do with Mao, and like, it's almost like a, it's also a way of taking things that are serious, like purposely making them seem absurd. And I feel like you get that a lot today, yes. where yes. And calling it iron, ironic. Yes. I'm an ironist. Don't yeah. take me seriously. That's the thing about humor. It's like humor is actually an art, and mm-hmm. it's really corrupted today. Where like all the family this is like Hanukkah is doing comedy. Humor where like for even Gil Scott Heron's White on the Moon. It's comedy because you're pointing out the absurdity of the ruling elite. Yeah. Something that is going against the people. But humor all today is just making everything absurd. Like that's meme culture. You take the smallest thing with a frog on the street and you make it absurd. Or the worst, the worst thing is you take, for example, like a lot of us have been studying Korea. Like North Korea is the most demonized country, or the most demonized leaders, and you make it a meme. Like you make North Korea, which is actually a very serious project of humanity, you make it funny. Like you make fun of the haircut, you make fun of the way their leaders look. Right, yeah. Or, for example, even something like the cities. You know, it's a joke to a lot of people. The pastels of the cities, like the way they've set up there. But to them, it's like they try to make the city beautiful. To to be said, you look at the origin of like pastels and stuff. And for Shed, the journalist who Jeremiah mentioned, he talks about how it was actually a way to try to resolve the contradiction between the divide between rural in urban areas. You try to make urban areas look more light and green mm-hmm. and reminiscent of nature. And then you make the rural areas have city-like facilities, libraries, schools. And so, you know, you take something that was a serious reconciliation, a really big contradiction that even America like has today, the rural-urban divide. Instead, you just make it funny like a meme. Oh, look at these pastel, this pastel, like homogenous, like wonky, childish,
yeah, a lot of the memes, like there's actually something deep in it, but then it just gets distorted because people make like 5,000 copies and change things slightly. And so you can't even like find the original thing or like know like what the original was. Uh, go, go ahead, Derek. And, um, you know, it ain't no accident, you know, I'm, you know, I'm talking about career and maybe my art experience and just being in that, being in that sphere of influence. Sometimes you don't know what sphere of influence you in. just could be in a certain sphere. But since, since, since Korean was more indelible on me, I've had to watch so many films about Korea. It's not really, but there's nothing about what I've done with the white men. It's not even in the picture. It's what was going on in Korea is like translating, like, I'm, I want to say something, but um, somebody from that end needs this love bond between Korea and China and India. And then, and then, and, and from my experience, the people that live in the mountains in North Korea, they're not the only mountain people that's the country for. But it's something that's part of the tapestry of like what you do. So you can't just cut that downfall. From a, so you can't cut it off with the line. You can't cut it off. With, it's just something that's part of like how do you get to talk to everybody? And and, and sometimes you want to go underground. If they had to go underground in the, in the Korean War, they had to go underground and go to another um, place. But they don't. The person that's attacking them don't know that they have like they have understanding in Japan. So you can't put your foot on top of Japan all the time because. This remarkable creativity that Korea had been doing. It's just like using something from Africa, using something from Japan. They was doing something different. So it, so it kind of it kind of helped them super, supervise their science in the world. Or their technology and whether it's a clock, it's a lot of technology. But it's but it's a human contrast to this technology. And so art is a high art contrast. Well, I wouldn't be bringing up Korea, you know, because it's something that they have a purpose to do. And we might not like North or South, but North and South still talk no matter what's going on. They got families on both They got families in all these industries. <laughs> Go ahead, Florida Um, I was thinking about this pop uh, art thing that we've been talking about a lot. I feel like inherently it's an attack on culture. Okay. And... Uh, one of the most insidious kind of attacks I think that the ruling class can mount, simply because culture is also one of the great uniters of people, and it can carry history um, of what's happened in the past and what was done to overcome it. So when you say something like Snoop Dogg is comparable to John Coltrane, you're basically you're you're cutting people away from you know the beautiful and profound art that. Black people have created, and you know this, these creations were in the struggle for liberation. As they, they, they were, they were the result of the struggle for liberation they were uh, engaged in in a country that was built on their backs, and you know which had which tried systematically to disinherit them from all that was their due. And so, yeah, I, I was really when all of you were talking about, I was really reminded of how sophisticated an attack on art and culture is and the far reaching consequences that it has. Let me let uh, let me let Debbie and then Kyla. Jay. 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 Jay.
to me and then Kayla. I'm thinking the best to start on is Warhol. Um, first was, first was, um, you know, I think of his like iconic portrait, right? So you brought up the mouth portrait, but also the, the Marilyn Monroe portrait, right? And you think of Marilyn Monroe, and he was a comedian. People often think of her as a close, you know, symbol, but often she was, you know, in comic roles in American films. And you know, had a kind of a tragic life. Mm -hmm. And you know, the whole relationship with the Kennedys, I'm I'm not quite sure exactly how that works, but uh so there are these figures that he grabs onto now and then you know, connecting this portrait of Mao with Henry Winston's critique of Mao. You know, what and these are contemporary you know, Winston publishes strategy and I would be curious to look at the date of that mouth portrait because some of the contradictions that uh, Winston sees in now, which you know had to see in the international relations at the time, uh, you can see in the art because yeah. art but is. Let me just make one statement. See, Andy Warhol appropriates the image of Mao at the height of the Cultural Revolution. And, and it's almost the equivalent of a meme, which you all have described as a, he uses Mao as this, quote, celebrity devoid of what Winston takes seriously. The political substance. Yeah, I, I just want to say, but go ahead. No, yeah, I don't think they're engaging with the equivalent, but the coincidence of the, well, what is this? I don't know. I, I would be curious to research exactly what Warhol was thinking when he created that portrait. Or, like, if he traveled to China. But I would say this his mouth portrait. Is equivalent to his Marilyn Monroe portrait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, if, yeah. so that day, okay, go ahead. And Warren Hansberry, you know, very serious dramatist engaging with, I guess, I mean, I don't know if she, you know, her work is not quite tragedy, not quite comedy, it's tragic, you know, tragic yeah. comedy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, her meeting with the Kennedys was called. Right. And Marilyn Monroe's, you know, very controversial affair and so on. So I don't know. Because yeah. These are certainly political uh, works of art. I go, go ahead, go ahead, Jella. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of want you to personally like, you know, there's a certain way celebrities have to look to be beautiful. I, I kind of want to focus on this one certain celebrity who I feel like proved all that kind of wrong, Steve Lizzo. And mostly for celebrities like Kim Kardashian and stuff, you know, they have big breasts, big boobs, you know, they're skinny, they work out, they have a perfect life. So Lizzo, Lizzo is naturally herself, and she seems to get a lot of hate for that because she isn't skinny. She, you know, she's chubby. And it's not fair to the fact that it's not like you have to look <laughs> like that. She has a wonderful voice. That's what matters. Her art is being put out there. That's what matters. And people who criticize other 
like I see this art on the wall, people are going to say probably criticize that, but it's beautiful. Like you see art on this crazy and building, people be like, well, that's graffiti. You can't be doing that, but it's beautiful art. Our pop up those works of art. I mean, all you here have the work of art y'all done, and it's beautiful art. And I feel like a lot of people, everyone, should be praised for art. That you know, that's what comes inside you. That's your soul.
does culture do if not and like coming from this school the civilization and it's like I don't know it's like these uh what is it at least it's like one the relationship of the artist you know in struggle yeah. with people but then it's like the broader responsibility of people the broader responsibility of the state um what does it have to leave it behind for people to come up to you to learn from but see, like I think with this question, it's like, what does the new human being um, mean? Yeah. Um, because when in a revolutionary process, like it's all people involved. Um, the artist has a role, yes, but it's like, it's uh, what I'm trying to say is that when it gets to um, like how people will be transformed into a new society, like we're talking about a non-capitalist like path of development, new economic system, new world order, like new things. Like it means that like the like you're like yes, you're responsible for the future, yes, the artist is responsible for the future. There's that. But then it's like what is the artist? Um, what is the purpose of all human beings and and what is art really? Um, but, yeah. No, I mean, it's just something about substance and what you, because Russia and America keeps running in my mind, and it's like, it's an unpublished manuscript um, by Du Bois in, in like 1950, and we studied it this past, like 2020. Um, it was, because if you look on the page, it will be all there. And, yeah, so, and when looking at like the last chapter of America and Russia, how like um, the boys was also saying that the uh, strivings of both, uh, I guess, countries, civilizations, whatever, are similar in searching for democracy and things like that. You know, there's like, it's just how, like, what is the role um, that you as a person, but then it's the question of like, what is the role of each country in the world? What is the role of how, like, um, you know, like, world peace, like, like where, you know, and how is it, how is the interaction between one thing, but it's like, um, I don't know, that's what I'm thinking about. Like, the, it's not just a whole question of, like, what is art and the artist, but it's like a question of, like, the scientists, you know, of, yeah. like, the mathematician, the architect, what are they doing in society, and how does this new society also like um make people to have these actual contributions to humanity um yeah what i don't know you're talking about like how can architects make housing for people for people not for profit and how can like you know medicine or whatever like we talk about but what does a new human being actually look like
the contributions of ordinary people like slaves. Slaves formed the basis of all of American culture. Right. Um, and that's what I mean. That's how you know if a culture will last if it's built on, or, or how a society will last if it's actually governed by the people who make it. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's what we also really got from Russia and America. We learned about a society where, you know, the people who actually created that society were governing. And so what kind of art and culture and science were they producing? And yeah, yeah. Can I ask, Emily, are there any more uh, comments on the live stream? I mean, what else 
I mean, I don't know, and I'm not a youth, as you can see. But <laughs> come on, Dad. <laughs> but what? And this is what Derek is talking about when he says he had shop class where he learned to do things with his hands, to carve things out. And you know, it's unfortunate when I was in Wagner, as you were, Wagner Junior High School. The people taking shop class would look down upon. I was a, a, a lecture. I had. I was an electrical. I was a major in electrical. I, I, well, let me just make. Let me make the rest of my point. But the point is that today you don't have a shop class. You don't have that. And but. My, I, I just want to make a small point. I mean, what the fuck do you say to young people today? We don't want to say what is being told to them every day. Yeah, we right. want to attack and challenge that. Yeah. You know, young people will come to this preschool right here, and just like my grandmother, you don't have to know everything because you don't know everything. Absolutely. And I was, I was teenager. I was showing the battle of Algiers at Wagner Junior High. Wow. I had to go through my neighborhood because I was in black concerned people. And that was the mission. Somebody put that film in my hand. See if you can get that way. I was I was in Ali for 10th grade. I was showing that film at Wagner for June for our junior high school. The battle of Algiers. Do you imagine the principal as me? When you you don't got you got who does help? I up and my people that my black concerns and some of the old heads that position the battle out there. I wasn't because we go out here and up with the line. But we were going the front line like you were. We inherited something. Let me call on Divya and then maybe we'll go to the uh interview with Diane next. Go ahead, Divya. Going back to Colt Crane and and this is very important because it goes back, I think, um, to the question of what is art, because it is, yeah. depends on our definition of what art is. I know at least in Indian art, it's, it's not the form of the art that's important, but the idea. And the it idea. goes back again to the tension between something like Coltrane, like when you think of the concept of the, the music, of, of the song, you know, these great concepts, old, you know, or McCoy China, Atlantis, yeah. you know, it's like the idea, the platonic, closer to the platonic, I'm not saying it's identical to the platonic, though it is closer to the Socratic ideal of the Republic. And so you see,
about Diane Nash, it's about the interviewers. Um, they are um, very superficial, very petty bourgeoisie, and Diane is bringing deep concern and thought to an environment that is not trying to be deep. So I just keep that in mind. I pay attention to Diane Nash and not... Uh, the interviewers, very frivolous women.
in the work. I actually want to specifically shout out one of our instructors, Andy Pringle, who is a Nash, Ms. Nash, this is such an honor and such a privilege to talk to you. Morgan in particular is a history buff and I met her over 20 years when she was an African-American history student at USC. And over the last 20 years, I feel like we have talked endlessly about your legacy, your work, your impact. And Girl Trek, we always say that we walk in the footsteps of a civil rights legacy. But when I woke up this morning, I was like, this is the real legacy come to life. And I'm so glad we get to bring this conversation to the million Black women who follow us. And I just want to say I'm excited and thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Oh, thank you for that. I've been looking forward to the interview also. And you said a million Black women? Yes, ma'am. You just gave me stage fright. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. That's impossible because when I think about you, this is Morgan talking, that's impossible because when I think about you, I immediately have an image in my head. There is a, a historic photo of you, and I think you're crossing like the Pettus Bridge or some iconic place, and you're in front of a whole group you have on your little pencil skirt. You walk, and you probably got a clipboard or something, but you walk in, and all these men are are walking behind you, and the divine like purpose in your face is so inspiring to me. It's one of my favorite photos from the civil rights movement. So I, I cannot even believe the No Little podcast. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really joking. But I know the <laughs> photograph you are, you're talking about, that was picture when Turney's home had just been bombed. It's about six o'clock that morning in Nashville. And we organized a march, a silent march of about 3,000 people to go to the courthouse and confront the mayor and say, now, see, this is what happens when you allow your city to remain segregated. I don't know if you knew the background of that. I did not. And I, I like that you use the word confrontation because I saw the determination in your face on that picture, this notion of confrontation is sometimes hard for me in this world where I'm trying to cultivate real peace in my life. And so the world, I feel like, is confrontational. I feel like the world for Black women, and every single day, we have to like confront like a world that is designed almost to exploit our labor. But there is a, a real softness about you in that picture, a real beauty in that picture where you, you didn't seem diminished by the confrontation. I don't know if I have a real question except for how do you do it? How do you balance justice work and protecting yourself and saving your own life? You know, Mohandas Gandhi, when he developed nonviolence, I am convinced that there was no more significant invention I'll say social invention of the 20th century. There is a whole philosophy and a lot of strategy 
contained in the nonviolence that he invented. He actually invented a way to not only change society, but wage warfare without using violence. And one important thing that I learned in the process of learning nonviolence is that people are not your enemy. Unjust systems are your enemy. You know, unjust economic systems, unjust social systems like segregation, attitudes, emotional and mental illnesses. And if you learn to confront those things that are really the enemy and remember that human beings are your brothers and sisters, it helps a lot. Thank you. Maybe I should explain that a little bit. In Nashville, when we were desegregating lunch counters, the way we proceeded was that we targeted six lunch counters and restaurants. We took them through the process of a nonviolent movement and successfully desegregated them. The second year, we targeted six more restaurants and lunch counters in order to desegregate them. Now, one of the managers of a lunch counter that we worked on the first year and desegregated took it upon himself to visit each of the six managers and owners we were working on that second year and tell them, go ahead and desegregate. It's a good thing to do. We did not lose business. So you can see that it was not he that was the opposition or that was the enemy. It was his racism that was the enemy because he, the person, became an ally that second year. I love that example so much. I love it so much. Yeah. You can love the person and confront the injustice at the same time. That is true. It's something that I'm personally trying to learn and haven't mastered. I feel like it's one of the reasons why we need to talk to elders like you, even to be reminded to orient ourselves to kind of the bigger picture of things. Some people may not know, but there were a couple of things that I was struck by when I was just going back to kind of review your story, Ms. Nash. One is you were very young. I read 22 years old when you started desegregating the lunch counter in Nashville. And the people you were with like, are legendary when you name out those names. But all of you at that time were just young and black and trying to make a difference. And I'm wondering if you could talk about where you were able to source that courage from and where you were able to source that gumption from where at 22 years old, you weren't just a part of a movement, you were leading, you were strategizing, you were saying, no, six lunch counters here, six lunch counters there. And I'm just wondering at 22 years old, when you think back and see your 22 year old self, where were you sourcing that courage from? Well, it came from several sources that I can identify. One was from my grandmother. I am the daughter of Dorothy and granddaughter of Carrie. And my grandmother, Carrie, was my primary caregiver up until I was seven years old because my mom worked full time. And so I was with my grandmother during the day. And she instilled in me a sense of my importance and self-esteem. 
And she told me, never let anyone mistreat you. She was speaking in one instance of not letting men mistreat me. And she said, if you grow up and get married and your husband hits you, don't be stupid like a lot of women and keep it a secret. She said, learn the neighborhood. Yes, <laughs> she said, run out of the house. Learn the neighborhood, and first chance you get, leave him. <laughs> so you are not to be hit or mistreated. And so when I got in the South and got sent to back doors and told that I could not go places that the general public went, it felt like, hmm, Carrie Bolton's granddaughter? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> And so, you know, that was her instilling self-esteem in me was part of it. And I think it illustrates how politically important how you treat children are, because it makes a difference. And then I did a lot of reading as a child. Another thing is that although I grew up in Chicago, which was segregated, they didn't have signs. But when I went to Tennessee... They had signs that said white only and colored and so forth. And, you know, blacks could not go to the public library or, you know, restaurants. Many places blacks just couldn't go. And every time I obeyed a segregation rule, I felt like I was agreeing that I was too inferior to use the front door or something. So... It really bothered me, and I started looking for an organization that was trying to combat segregation. And after asking many people on campus and in the dorms and what have you, if they knew of such an organization, and being told no, I finally found Reverend James Lawson's workshops. He had been to India had studied Gandhi's movement firsthand and was in Nashville giving workshops and teaching students and community people and anyone who wanted to learn it, really, teaching them the philosophy and strategy of nonviolence. And so that's how I got involved. Miss Nash, I just got overcome again by the fact I never get starstruck. (laughs) I just got overcome that I'm talking to you. I can't believe it. Your legacy is so big. From SNCC to Freedom Rides to lunch counter boycotts, I mean, it's just so huge. What, we would not live the lives we're living today without your leadership and your strategy. And I just want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for going outside of the box. Thank you for being sometimes the only woman in the room and still having the loudest voice, still having the big ideas, still doing what is what was required. I thank God for your mother and your grandmother, Carrie, and what they instilled in you. When I was preparing for this, I was reading about your childhood, and I was like, boy, I mean, you know, we have a million black women, and there's so many of them are mothers, and they are trying to figure out how to raise black boys and black girls in a world that is violent for them. I read just a small little detail that I think it was your stepfather who was a Pullman porter. I was like, this is the world she was living in. So can you give us some advice around raising children? Any additional thoughts you have on that? Well, I think you would do well to consider their self-esteem, the child's self-esteem. Children learn who they are by who you are. 
not what you say, but who you are and what you do and what they see you do. I personally think it's important not to teach children to not do something because they fear getting hit. People use the term spank. I think it's important to encourage the child to make decisions and let them know that you believe in their ability to make good decisions. You believe in their their goodness of heart. If you believe in them, they start believing in them. Mrs. Nash, you just saved somebody a whooping this <laughs> evening. You just saved somebody a whooping uh, this evening. I'm so grateful. I have a, a quick personal question, and I, I'm nervous about asking, but I'm going to go ahead and ask because that's who we are. I think I read that you got a divorce after six or seven years, and I recently got a divorce because it just wasn't on my path from a wonderful person, but it just wasn't on my path. Is that true that you got a divorce, and did you ever get remarried? I got a divorce. That's very true. I never got legally remarried. <laughs> that's my kind of marriage. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't believe in the vows that says you'll be together till death do you part. In the first place, you don't know that. <laughs> you don't know what you who you'll be and who your partner will be in five or ten years or in the future. I think it's important to concentrate on the present. You know, being the best partner you can be today maybe preparing for tomorrow. <laughs> but I think that people's paths naturally, some of them grow together and some grow apart after a while. I think the universe puts you with people for reasons. And I think sometimes you give each other what you have to give or one person gives what they have to give. And then your paths part. For instance, if I was with a man who did not want to grow and constantly become better, I wouldn't stay if I wasn't happy. That doesn't mean I'd walk away quickly because as long as somebody wants to work on themselves and or on our relationship, I have extreme patience. But if someone is just not interested in investing in the relationship and becoming the best person they can be and so forth, I don't see a reason for staying with them. Oh, you just saved some actual lives. I raise my hand in just complete gratitude for that wisdom that you just spoke because I've been feeling so guilty about not... I'm so achievement-oriented and not just sticking in there. You understand what I mean? Because it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. So, yeah. So I just really appreciate that advice. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your personal reflection on relationships. I really appreciate it, and I know the women walking with us um, today really appreciate it. Uh, One of the things that... Before you ask me another question, I want to just add something that I think is important to what I said. I'd like for you and the million women to know that I believe in psychological therapy. I've been 
in it most of my adult life. I participate when I don't have an immediate problem because just getting to spend an hour or two a week on working on myself and my situation and and learning how to deal with the world and, and learning about myself, I find so important. And some kind of therapy, whether it's individual or group therapy, or even self-help books. I probably read as many psychology books as a PhD. <laughs> and it's been well worth it. When I look at some of my family members whom I love, but who I could never get to get into therapy. And now I'm 83 years old and I look back at who they were and who I was in my childhood and early adulthood. And I think there, but for the grace of God and many hours of therapy and lots of money <laughs> that I've spent on it, go I. And, and I think that it is so well worth it. I am very different from who I was in my early 20s. And if I was not different from my family members, I would think that the therapy was a real waste, but it's not. And I'm grateful for the growth and changes because when you do realize things and work on yourself, life gets better, much better. But there are any women among the millions that are listening that have that hesitancy Get rid of it. It's worth it. You miss out on so much. You don't realize that you can get better. I appreciate that so much, and I'm so glad that you decided to share a little bit more. This is a movement where we are trying to save the lives of Black women, and we are trying to give them the practical pathways forward. And part of what we are always holding, I think, as Black women is how do we be in service and not lose ourselves, and to know that therapy <laughs> and investing really in in exploring and diving deep and getting professional help is one of the things that you did, I think is going to give a lot of other women permission who are high achieving and high functioning and doing a lot of work for a lot of other people, but maybe not doing that work for themselves. Miss Diane Nash just told all of us that we need to be in therapy. Vanessa, and when I tell you, she was talking to me. Go ahead and get up in that therapy, girl. I hear it in your voice. She was like, mm. She was like, I'm yes. in that therapy. Stop I playing. it. Look, I we ain't going yes. to talk ourselves or laugh ourselves or whine ourselves yes. out of all of this. And we have been through a lot of collective trauma and we have been through a lot of individual trauma. I also believe in therapy. And so thank you for sharing that. It's one of your tools in your toolbox actually, of what you are using. And I'm not surprised that you're 83 years old and this spry and this on this call in this way, because you're doing the work. Absolutely. Thank you. 
I'm dying to know this and I don't even know why, except that I think it is the small choices that we make that pivot us in one direction or other that end up defining a lot of who we are. And you originally were enrolled at Howard University, and we have talked a lot about Howard as an institution on these Black History Bootcamp calls because it's played such a pivotal role in so many people's lives. HBCUs in general have played a pivotal role. You moved from Howard to Fisk, and it is really at Fisk where you started to, I think, cut your teeth in the activism way. And I'm just wondering what prompted that move from Howard to Fisk? That's my first question. And then my second question is actually, we now have Kamala Harris in the White House from Howard. As an HBCU grad, did you ever envision the day that we would have a black woman in the White House? So there are two questions, but both of them are a little bit about Howard. All right. The first one why I transferred from Howard to Fisk. There are just a few items that I am saving for my own writing, and that's one of them. That's one of them. Ooh, that means it was a good question. That means it was a good question. You, like, hold off to my book so you can read all the juicy details. Okay. That's right. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) And now, Kamala Harris is an introduction to a issue that is concerning me right now. There has been for many, many years efforts at diluting the power of Black people who are descendants of slavery, or as, well, my granddaughter coined this, descendants of the emancipation. Starting back in the mid 60s at least, there were so many Asians brought into the country as medical professionals. Did you happen to notice on television when during the COVID they had all these doctors and medical professionals and how few of them were descendants? Lots of Asians and people who may have been of color or or black, but very few of us. Bringing all the Asians in back in the 60s meant that it would not be necessary to educate us in large numbers to become medical professionals. And a decade or so made it possible to incarcerate so many of us, mass incarceration and still not have a deficit in, you know, the medical professionals that the country needed. Skip ahead in the 70s when black students sat in administration buildings all over this country and demanded black studies and successfully got them. And back then I was speaking on a number of college campuses and it would be the Black Student Union or the Black Studies Department who invited me. As time passed and Office of Multiculturalism and Office of Diversity came into being, it became less and less frequent that I got an invitation from Black Studies or Black students. And by putting them and putting us under an umbrella, with other people whose history was much less harsh than ours, they also moved the funding 
and we hardly noticed. We are so used to being stolen from that people can steal from us and we barely notice. Now, what's happening recently is that many people who are not descendants of the emancipation, but who happen to be black, are given the benefit of identifying as representing us. Now, we should have learned from Clarence Thomas from the Supreme Court that skin color does not mean that you are representing black people. So we have had a president, President Obama, and now a vice president who are not descendants of slaves. I have nothing against them, but I think it's important for us to notice that fact. Not only them, but in the movies. In the movie Selma, Martin Luther King was played by an African. Coretta was. I was played by an actress who was not a descendant of slavery, Amelia Boynton. I mean, a long list. Recently, a movie about Harriet Tubman. If you start listing the movie stars and personalities that are paid very highly, it's too many of them for it to be an accident. Culturally, they, they don't have the great uncle who was lynched or many of the things that, that happened. And when they make a lot of money, very often some of these Africans and people who are not from this country send that money back to their country. And so even though some of them might be great actors and actresses, what's wrong with us? Why is this happening? We can't go to their country and reciprocate. So I just think we need to be conscious of of this. And just don't allow people to appropriate our culture. It's okay that they do whatever they do. (laughs) Don't pretend that you are representing us. Can I just say, Dr. Nass, I'm going to tell you, I appreciate actually the courage it takes to voice an opinion that is not mainstream but that is essential to our liberation. I just really appreciate it. And it takes me all the way back to what you were saying, that it's not the people who are the enemy. It's the systems. It's the systems that value black people who are not descendants of emancipation more than they value us. You understand what I mean? And that's an issue. It is an issue. So I I deeply appreciate the, the eloquence and the, the love in which you shared an opinion that's a hard one for us to face and grapple with. I just really appreciate it. it it's important oh. for us to have that amount of self-esteem. And it's important for us to realize that these things... Listen, just to be... I don't mean to interrupt, but this is a very critical point that Diane Nash made. And as much as I uh, dislike those interviewers and their frivolity and all that giggling and carrying on, um, that woman was right. 
when she said that Diane Nash had the courage to express something that is not popular. See, the consensus is we're supposed to act like Barack Obama is a Black American. He's not. Or that Kamala Harris is a Black American. She is not. Whatever they might be, they're not Black Americans. Like, uh, like uh, Diane Nash said, I was also taken aback by uh, the Nigerian actor playing Martin Luther King in this movie. First of all, he couldn't play Martin Luther King. Martin Luther, the guy was like walking around like this the whole time. It was a disgrace. And then on and on and on. But when a woman that interviewer got it wrong, and that's not what Diane was saying, this whole thing that, well, now you're going to shift it to the system. Well, it is a system, but there are people making decisions is the point that Diane Nash was making, that we're not going to have African-Americans. That, you see, this is where uh, it, it breeds, let me put it this it breeds on the part of non-African-Americans contempt for the African-American people. And this is not just Asians or Africans, Caribbeans, who look down upon African Americans, who take advantage in these universities, these black studies programs. They rise in them under this framework of Afrocentrism, and we're all an African people, and all of that, and then take revenge out on African-Americans. I was the victim of that. I was a victim. It was not just Malefe Asante as debased as he is, but it was a woman of a, a Caribbean, a Martinique, who does all she can to keep that kind of French accent so everybody knows I'm not one of those Negroes living in North Philadelphia. You understand what I'm telling you? This, and I'm not, this is not just me saying it, Diane, but African-Americans feel this very deeply. In West Philadelphia, there's a thing called Africa Town. We're not celebrating it as Black Americans and Black Philadelphians. Why do you need a separate town from us? You understand where I'm coming from? So, and so, I mean, with, with, it was so apparent uh, with Barack Obama, his elitism, his aloofness, his uh, trying to please white people, as immigrants are prone to do. How do I know that my father's an immigrant from an African country? I know the game. I know how it is played. I know how you keep a certain tone in your voice so you're not mistaken for that black worker from the South. You understand all of this drama. And at the end of the day, the black young person does not go to Central High School. You say 18% black. Well, how many of them 
are descendants of the slaves. That's what we want to know. Go to Temple, go to Penn, go to Harvard. Yeah, we're all black, but we're not black Americans. Now, why is that important? Because it is black Americans that wage this heroic struggle. You know what I'm saying? This music that we talk about, this is black America as, as coming out of our great struggle. So it is to obscure this. That's what we mean, and I'll just end on this, when we talk about the centrality of the African-American struggle to every other struggle for progress. So don't throw the LGBTQ up in my face. You ain't fought for nothing. You know, don't come with that. It's an insult, and every black person, whatever their sexuality is, who has not sold out, accepts it as an insult. It's an insult. The other principle is the principle of non-equivalency. There is no equivalent to the black struggle in this country. There is no, and the third is the principle of principle unity. Don't come to me with no fake unity principle or try, this, this is what uh, Brandon is talking about, this attempt to terrorize those of us who stand up for principle with the claim that if I don't accept your postmodern uh, sexuality principle, uh, somehow I'm a bigot. Uh, if I'm a black man, gay, straight, or whatever, I'm a carrier of a, of a bigoted principle, even though it is black people who reconfigured this country, by the way. And this is a very ironic thing. America today is less racist than it was in the 1950s and 60s. Less racist. Why? Because you had Martin Luther King, because you had Muhammad Ali, because you had Diane Nash. This is a contribution to world humanity. You don't have to bring a Nigerian, I say to, I say to a Nigerian, to your face. Don't come over here trying to misappropriate what we have fought for. Your country is still unfree. This is, and it's an insult. And Diane Nash is a great hero. Can I just say one other thing about her thing of, of psychological counseling? She went through a lot, including in her marriage, in her marriage to James Bevel, who uh, went into a, a downward cycle of decadence. I won't go into all of the details. But you know, it's a hell of a thing to be married to a person and have children with a person who then goes completely nuts. Bevel was a great fighter, great courageous fighter in the civil rights uh, time. Diane Nash had to get herself back together. You don't fight for freedom and and, and sacrifice and see so many others 
and it doesn't have a deep impact. There are wounds that have to be repaired. Uh, some people, even in the great struggles in Asian Africa, turn to opium and other things to deal with the problems of, you know, internalized. So that's what she, but I would say for us, and I, I'm not against counseling. There's some people even in the preschool that need counseling. And I wish I could find a good counselor for them. <laughs> but, but you, 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 you. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Psychology. <laughs> Psychology. But, uh, but the preschool. See, I'm, I believe in the principle of the intersection of the psychological and the ideological. It's just like with the nation of Islam that raised a lot of black people out of drug addiction. And one of the things that I despise, me and Brandon talked about this yesterday, I despise about the treatment of the nation of Islam as though it was some kind of thug organization, whatever. It was, or they weren't really teaching Islam, like what is really Islam, you know, it's, it's all kind of Islam. But it's, was religious in one sense, but at the essence of it, it was to uplift the oppressed. That was that was their appeal. That was the appeal to, to Muhammad Ali, as well as offering a critique of the general Black Christianity, where all the iconography, all of the symbols were white. Jesus was white. Uh, Mary was white, everything was white, God was white. Now, you know, we had a double consciousness relationship to it because those images were, were when we buy a church, it was a church that was previously owned by white people. So, of course, we will have white images. But uh, it was a critique. And most people, religious people, pastors and so on, ordinary black people, we, we saw the nation of Islam and its teachings as a necessary corrective, you know, and it was. So I just want to say those things. But I, I hear Diane, and she, she's a very controlled person, which I wish I were like her. But this is a troubling thing. In universities, fewer and fewer and fewer black people and black young men, but then we see the elite from Nigeria or from Liberia, the elite occupying you. Oh, go ahead, May. You, no, no, if you don't mind, I'm sorry if I sound No, no, no. I mean, the concept of black worker, who is a black worker, yeah. if someone comes from Nigeria um, or even Asia, it doesn't mean they're part of the configuration that will free humanity. I, 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 but there, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and the, there's the beauty of the black worker all over the world, people who are creating the system and who have the power to change it, and who are the majority of the world. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the thing with immigrants, like the, the other side of it is the brain drain. I mean, just the horrific damage, the yeah. importation yeah. of all these doctors has done. Uh, I mean, there's so many sick people who need access to that health in these countries. 
I mean, especially I'm, I'm thinking of India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. But the, I mean, it's really a crime that so many people have been uh, allowed to come. Um, I mean, even my own father, like he wanted to teach. Well, this is the thing. He wanted to teach uh, in India, but they said we want someone who's trained in the West. So I mean, it really is a whole. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot there, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a crime on many different levels. And yeah, I think that the black worker concept really gives the clarity necessary uh, to understand, like, actual principles. Um, yeah. yeah. Just to add to that, you know, it's the, Plays on both sides 
in Africa and in the United States. And here's the other problem. Take the African intellectual in the university. That person, more than not, does not identify with the civil rights movement. They will identify with Garvey before they identify with Martin Luther King. You see what I'm saying? Now, the weight of that, you get Du Bois out, you know, as, as you know, I was put out of temple, but the fool said we don't need Du Bois, you know, and he should have been fired at that point by the dean. If you say African-American studies doesn't need Du Bois, we don't need you. But that's not the way the game is played. But yet, you populate the teaching staff disproportionately with non-African-Americans and call this the African, the global African project. Or at the HBCU. See, I want you guys to realize, when I went to college, 90% of black college attendees and graduates went to historically black colleges and universities. We were more intelligent back then too. This integrating into white universities, like going to Temple, that, that was not an uplift project. That was a dummying down process. I, I would hate, I mean, this is Du Bois always, listen. And this is, some of these are difficult truths. To fight against segregation as an institution, but to preserve the institution built up by Black people to resist the system of racist oppression. So just because we want legal equality does not mean we want to do away with the Black colleges and universities, the Black church, the Black, every Black person marry a white person, so we don't have the black family no more. You understand what I'm saying? We don't want, that's not what we're in this for. But we all went to black colleges. All of our professors were black, including the white people. We disposed to the white black outlook, black freedom. When I was at Lincoln, I took uh, Michelle and, and Sophie there, and Alice wants to go, and just to see it. When they saw way out in the country and all of these old buildings from the 1900s, 19th century, 1800s, not, not like Penn, not all these modern buildings, even today, we were very modest. Back then, we had even less. And you know, we liked it that way. Because in not having all of that, we felt ourselves closer to our people. We really did. And so we could be freedom fighters because we were not. A, a person would come, a black person would come from Harvard or something like that. We would run them off of the campus. You no good Uncle Tocket. <laughs> and that's the way we felt because we felt that we were the smartest students in the country. And we felt that we had a purpose for being there. 
take a graduate of an Ivy League, a black graduate. They're more white than black. They think like white people. Their ambition is to be like white people, not like the black masses. So this is very important to understand. Um, I can't just say one other thing. It's just most of my life, I did not um, have relations with many white people. None of us did. I, if you ask me today, outside of people in the free school, I don't have any white good friends. When I joined the Communist Party, I was interacting with a lot of good white people, but I didn't consider them like real friends, like you have real friends growing up. If that applied to me, you can imagine the average black poor or working person. They don't know white people. They don't interact. Their interactions with white people or people who are not black are very limited. We're highly segregated. You know, we live in black. I don't care, even the black professional lives in a black neighborhood for the most part. Uh, he or she goes to a black church or a black mosque. Everything we do is pretty much with black folks. And it was even more so then. This form of integration has violated the substance of equality. And that's why they could replace an Obama with a black person. He's not black. He is not black in no way, and it's an, he's an insult to black people. Even his marriage to a black woman was not the choice that, because his preference is not for a black woman. He said it in his biographical writing. Yeah, his preference, and I'm, but that's his preference. I'm not, I'm not criticizing the preference. You understand? But the preference is not what the actual wife is. Right, 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 right. You understand what I'm saying? His preference is for, for a white woman. Beautiful. <laughs> but why didn't you marry one? Because it was politically untenable. And when Spignew Brzezinski and the elite chose him, and he was chosen while he was at Columbia, that not to be, they didn't know what he would become, but they had to get a cadre of somehow black people, something like a black person, or as you could say, black person like, you know, to be, to occupy these high positions. You see what I'm saying? So that's why he goes from Columbia to Harvard Law School, Harvard Law Review. Everything is done. Then when he goes to Chicago, he becomes a community worker for a year, which meant you didn't do nothing in the community, you know, in one year. All of that is to build up a resume. And he became the white elite's person. It, it's, 
I mean, this is real, and that's what that's what she. It is really demeaning. It is. It attacks our dignity. Uh, I say to. I don't give a damn who you are, Nigerian, uh, uh, Sierra Leonean, uh, South African. Uh, hometown, we don't need you. <laughs> Your people need you where you're from. We really don't need you. You know, we can handle this as we have handled it over these 400 years. I want principled unity and solidarity, but don't be looking down at me like you're superior. I had one tell me, you people. This is a cat from Liberia. I said, you people? That's what white people would normally say to us. You people. I said, you people, dog. I mean, what you talking about, you people? You know, and they're going to talk about they got family values and we African-Americans don't. They, they'll throw that in our face with quickness. That's my answer. But y'all, go ahead, Derek. I, but I just wanted to, I, I want you all to understand how we feel about these things. But go ahead. I know we got a lot of bearing, you know, coming to the preschool is beating, you know, I don't know who I'm going to be. I don't know what country, but I, excuse me, I don't know what country, but my greetings is to that person so that we can be the, that some decisive difference. That's what y'all, this is what the crisis is for that. Right. I'm, I'm a, I come from an older generation, but I also come from the respect of people that kind of, you know, was in front of me. To show me things, demonstrate, they practice, they have to do something for me to be acquainted with. That I'll bring, not bring, just bring my grandmother here. All y'all have family, want to know, it's just, it's just a good thing. Mm-hmm. Can you bring it back home and still have some, so have some meaning that mm-hmm. I could be able to, re- I could see your face. To me, she says she sees you smile, some meaning is still inside you. Because things bites with you. That we try to carry, that's the thing that I learned. Maybe about. Can I just interrupt you, Derek? See, the question of unity is always a question of principle unity. When Muhammad Ali stood up, that's why he was, I don't think there's ever been a human being that has been more loved by humanity than Muhammad Ali. When he stood up and said, No Viet Cong never called me nigga, that was a message to humanity. You understand? I think there are no people that have been more open to solidarity with humanity than the African-American people. It's in every poll. It's in every novel. It's in every essay. I mean, our great... Why do we study Du Bois, Russia, and America? My sentiment and most immediate knowledge is of Africa. But I have to admit that I was miseducated. The future is China. Mm. We would, I mean, this is us. And so now, to demean us, to, to, to you, you see what I'm saying, to, to make us like we're incapable. We are the ones that made this country, made it possible for people to come into this country. You know, that's part of the civil rights movement. The immigration bill of 1967, which took out the racist uh, 
aspects of previous immigration laws. This is what we have done, and it has to be acknowledged. You cannot have black liberation without black Americans. And no one can lead this the way we can. It's in our DNA in a lot of ways. And that's, that's what we need to awaken this among the youth, that you are something, that you, not some history in ancient Hammett shit, get the fuck out of here, a history in modernity. I, I, that's all I want. You know, so we, I mean, just like, just like you and your granddaughter, Derek, the smile, the openness, everybody knows that when Derek walks in the door, love comes in with him. We know, we know it was with Munchie. You see, when he said to uh, Raju and Nandita, I will love you forever. Where's that coming from? from us, you understand? You can't continue to act like Kamala Harris. Come on, girlfriend, yeah, you are, you are AKA, I like that you went to Howard. Beautiful. But girlfriend, you're not an African-American, a black American. You see what I'm saying? All I'm saying to Kamala, be, be for real. Keep it 100. Don't, don't play with me and, and our struggle. And that's what the whole game is about. It's cynicism. Well, I yeah, I'm sorry to talk to you. No, no, not, I don't I disagree with that every time you say that. Um I I I mean I when you were talking about, you know, being positive and you know, accepting, accepting. This is this is the trick, but the, 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 it's not it's not sweet, you know. Uh, when Africans, um, if they can only love you if you're making money, I have no love for you, you know. I I I have no. There's no in my heart. I mean, in terms of to 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 keep King in mind. In fact, what you're I have no love for what you're doing. You know, um, you've betrayed two people. This is the same with the bourgeois, the the, petty, the black petty bourgeois, uh, who are so down with Africa Town and so down with Molesse Asante. I have no love for what you're doing. You know, because you've betrayed two people, uh, two people that look to each other for their sense of self. Uh, African Americans uh, looked to Africans during that struggle, and, and you know, and saw there was a great uplift. And we were inspired, and we were inspired by the struggle, and that was where the positivity you're talking about was, you know, was through the struggle, you know, uh, African um, in Africa, you know, they came over, the you know, they the came, boat. they came over. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. They, they, they came, they, they came over, and they learned from the struggle here. Kwame Nkrumah studied in Lincoln, where Doc studied. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and it was, it was about struggle. You know, Africans that come over here and 
when you want to talk about their favorite car being a BMW and how they have family, better family values, ain't nobody got a better family value than mine. And you, and you best believe, you know what I mean? Um, and, Afri and African Americans, you know, uh, the 400 years that the family system has been destroyed only shows, and this is Henry Winston's point, only shows the African American family's capacity to endure. And that was what King touched on. You know, that was our capacity to suffer. You know, that, that was what we, that was what was showed there, you know, and um, it has to, it has to be principled. The principle is, is brotherhood. The principle is non-capitalist, a path for development. The principle is, is world peace and, and, and uh, freedom from exploitation. That might be the stuff, that might be the stuff that we follow. You know? Can you give us some comments on this, like, Gavin? No, we don't have anything. Except for um, he told me I just expresses at the best schools bring our experience to there, and the uh, deal also says hi from other parents. Who's Read 
talking about how the Chinese language and the languages of Central Africa were so similar. And and that's, you know, but anyway, put this aside. Go ahead. Okay, well, okay, but this is the thing about nonviolence. Um, and I, I guess I'm also thinking like about Baldwin and like his contribution stuff, maybe. You know, just in line with this, uh, the symposium, but just how, like, uh, I don't know, like the struggle, um, for the freedom of this country, um, and particularly dealing with the question of black people and their strivings and how to achieve also that freedom. But in the context of what we're thinking about with, civil, with the civil rights movement, Diane Nash, like there's something particular about this question of, like, I guess love and what you're saying, and nonviolence, but also having to do with freedom and unity and for unity. Like there's these, I guess, like things I'm kind of thinking about because if you, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how exactly do it, but it's like, it's like, um, unity is almost key to like the struggle for freedom, um, and it affects how you interact with the world on a personal level, it affects how people interact with other people, um, and how like I guess. You know, countries and civilizations interact in the world. Um, so I was just thinking about that, like, um, in a civilizational unity context, you know, um, as tied to that struggle or strategy to be done. But so, I'm sorry to have So, all questions we answer is the unity that you are seeking. Is it, is it going to always then be more inclusive, positively? Or, or, or will we be held captive mentally by conflict and um, relations, whether you come from Nigeria or, or Congo or any place? Can the language, be, can the language reflect what our real humanity, let's say a new human being, a model? Will it, will it, um, will, will it make, will it be? Put in a sex so that it's inclusive. I mean, young, white, I don't care what you do, a human being. Will the language you dying in the head of death or starting, will it all will it keep that open frame so that we don't have these, these um, invisible barriers between anybody, whether Nigerian or Zanzibar or anywhere that we study in the art of the world? You know, if, if one's going to study, the art of the world, or universal art, so we don't start chopping people on the chopping block, even if we're in this room right here. That's right. And I'm sorry if you feel I did that. No, I don't. No, but I'm not completely. I'm I'm for the. I'm not that in a point. Yeah, right. I, no, I feel you completely, yes. Eric. But see, we cannot reproduce in in Afro America a neo-colonial hierarchy. You understand? Where a part of the neo-colonial elite are people who because they have skin that might look like us, or even, because you know, Diane Nash is a very light-skinned woman. You know what I'm saying? So are we going to create an elite 
that does not is not grounded in the suffering and resistance of the African American people, who in fact, as Diane Nash was suggesting, might have contempt for that. And I'm not for it. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I'm for love. I love like they, like you say. I can love. I mean, I'm not attacking the individual unless the individual acts politically against the interests of the great mass of suffering people. My problem is don't come over here and look down upon the people and the struggle that made it possible for you to be here. Like African-American or Black studies. You didn't fight for this. So don't come over here acting like you want to find it. Absent the great mass of black people. If I'm wrong, I, I, I stand to be corrected. No, no I don't mean to. Yeah. Sorry, no, I'm just here. I go, I gotta do like this. Here's the phone. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm Here's sorry, Sarah. I don't mean to be impolite. But let me call on Divya. You know, it's like whatever, like King said, the bombs that are dropped in Vietnam explode in our own neighborhood. So if that's the case, so the logic is that the microcosm is the macrocosm. Whatever we see in the world is right here. Whatever we see outside is in us. You know what I see evil? It's because you know that your capacity to conduct, you know, we're always struggling with ourselves, all of us, and regardless of, you know, our nationality, you know, our class position, rich or poor, whatever. But the question is this, even the um, the elites that come here, um, they're, like the way they maintain their social status is they have to be against the poor in their own country. Absolutely. So you're against the, your, own, your own, you know, yeah. like flesh and blood. Uh, bone of the, you know, flesh of the flesh, bone of the bone, then, I mean, ultimately, yes, that is what makes us human. You know, like, we're all, if you're against one part of humanity, you're against all of yeah. Yeah. But you see the... And you, if you're against, your, you know, like, the, just like the bombs that, you know, the same, same principle. Right. But you see, when we talk about the substance of equality, now, we're not talking about it in general terms, we're talking now specifically, because we're talking about what is the trajectory of struggle for millions of young people who are, who are planned to be destroyed. And they are being destroyed, not educated, not given food, not given, and so on and so forth. That, that's all I'm saying. I agree. I agree with the universal principle of humanity, the Gandhian, the king. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Just to let credit our loyalty, one of the last things I remember reading. Really, no, it was from the, actually, she uh, spoke at the 150th birth anniversary of Swami Vivekananda yeah. um, in 1993. World Parliament of Religion. Mm -hmm. And um, she said our, our loyalties must be ecumenical right. rather than sectional. Okay. And I think Diane, that's a good 
And I see what I was noticing when Diane Nash was speaking was when she was speaking about Gandhi. Oh, that was what Gandhi did, it, it, it wasn't this, you know, it was a, a, a respect, a mm -hmm. sense of, you know, like, and she, and she said, we couldn't go to India and pretend to be Indian, playing Indian history, like, in a, even if it's like a volume, that's right, that's you know right. what I'm saying? That's right, that's like, right. It, it was so important, yeah. while at the same time, this elevation of Gandhi, yeah, so that it Gandhi, you know, and this is, you know, it made me feel so good the year of Gandhi. <laughs> yeah, but listen, go ahead, Serpina, we're going to wind this down, I guess. Well, you know, uh, um, uh, continue the conversation next week. Okay. Um, <laughs> but thanks for uh, joining the live stream. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>